This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello again. Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, episode 10 of our winter 2018 season, talking about the 10th episode of Darling in the Franks. I've had a few things come up this week, so editing might be a little rougher than normal. Now, last week, I suggested we might get another episode with a different parasite narrating as we continue this exploration of our side characters. And voila! We got Zotome as narrator with a subject that was near and dear to his heart, just like last episode's focus was near and dear to Godo's heart. Uh, I have a lot more to talk about than I would have guessed when I started writing this, so I'll keep this next part brief. I have to take a moment to correct some things I've said. Specifically, I have been under the impression that this image from the opening credits depicted someone reflected in Zero Two's eyes that was wearing wire rim glasses. As several people pointed out, this is not the case. It's actually a combination of Zero Two's unique iris design uh, and some unfortunately positioned cracks that gave me the impression of glasses. Basically, the interior part of her iris, uh, this part here, I was seeing as the rims of round glasses. Not perfectly round, thanks to the shattered reflection. I saw the cracks as the frame of the glasses themselves, like this. That part on the left especially reminded me of the bridge that some glasses have, and the part on the right being the temples that extend back over one's ear. Uh, they even are slanted upward, as though on someone who is looking down. Of course, looking at it with the idea that they aren't glasses, it doesn't take long to see my mistake. So, why did this happen? Well, my first impression was glasses, and seeing it afterwards didn't dispel me of this. Uh, it's like mishearing a song lyric. If you hear the wrong words to a song, but if they seem to fit or make sense anyway, then it doesn't occur to you that you are off. In fact, every time the song comes on and you sing the wrong words, they actually become more reinforced in your mind. It would never occur to you that they were incorrect until someone pointed it out. There was an old commercial on this idea that I remember, uh, and I'll put a link to it in the description so you can see what I'm talking about. But basically, two guys have both misheard the lyrics to the song Rocking the Casbah. One sings it as Locking the Cash Box, but his friend doesn't think that's right. He thinks the words are Stop the Cat Box, and so that becomes the way both of them sing it. Of course, now that I see they aren't glasses, the inclusion of someone else's eye in her eye seems pointless or misleading. Uh, with the glasses, I thought at least they were foreshadowing some character to appear, because no one matched that description yet. However, it's apparently just some eye. Uh, it's not Hero's eye, because he has huge irises, just like the girls, uh, but there's no other identifying feature besides the iris size, uh, suggesting that it's a guy, because uh, that's another one of those anime patterns. Luckily, this episode gives me something else to guess about that image, uh, so we'll get to that. Now, this whole thing brings up something that I might as well take this opportunity to address. I don't know if it's obvious or not from watching, but I don't spend any time reading or listening to others' opinions on these episodes uh, before I make these shows. Uh, the only time I get any other input at all are in the comments sections, 
uh, but by that time I've already made the video for that week. The upside is that none of my conclusions or theories arose from someone else's train of thought, so I don't end up with a foreign thought process that I can't replicate. I'm also less susceptible to everyone knows X type fan theories because I will only think that way if I arrived at the same conclusion. The so-called Blue Oni theory uh, around this show early on would be a good example of that. I only know about it because some of you talked about it in the comments and I eventually went to seek it out. However, the downside to being sequestered in my input is that I can easily miss things that quickly propagate throughout the fan community and become common knowledge. The names of our parasites and their number origins is an example of this, as I only could really guess some of them with the very limited Japanese that I know. This bit with the glasses that are really her iris uh, is another. I have assumed they were glasses based on my first 0.5 second impression back in episode 2, and I've never thought to revise it. A warning against attention blindness, uh, for sure. But I want you to know that I am not going to change the way I do this. I got used to complete community blackout thanks to being behind on Maiden Abyss and then Land of the Lustrous, and ultimately I discovered I preferred it. So I will continue with all of my first thoughts coming from my own frazzled brain, uh, and then I will extend that discussion only with you fine folks in the comments section. At least for the three to four hours I manage to find time for that each week. So then, let's get right to those frazzled thoughts. As I mentioned, it seems to be Zotome's turn to play narrator, and we begin with a recurring dream of his that sounds like a memory of his own birth. While we don't quite know the extent of the parasite's ignorance on human reproduction, I find it plausible that he may not know what birth is, or where children or babies come from, etc. And so even if this is literally his birth that he remembers, he might not realize it. But we don't actually know if live birth is even a thing in this universe. Uh, the parasites are incubated artificially, for all we know. However, I feel strongly that some birth-like event is what this dream is supposed to evoke in the audience, so we'll roll with it. Befitting an episode narrated by our spastic Zotome, this serious part of his past gets played right into a sight gag of him piloting Argentia, and we once again see a business-as-usual fight with a Klaxosaur. Uh, there's not much to this fight to comment on. Uh, the team behaves like a team in the same way as the previous two fights, and Zotome is characteristically hot-headed and over-eager, bringing him into conflict with his equally hot-blooded partner. After the credits, we get Ape's color commentary on this very fight. What's most interesting about this, I think, is how interesting they find it. What I mean is the average anime audience member watching our pre-credit fight scene would find it pretty standard fare, exactly the kind of tactics we expect from a team of powered-up individuals. To Ape, though, it is intriguing and strange, and they're linking up in ways other squads cannot. It becomes apparent that the idea of a team being greater than the sum of its parts is a foreign concept to them. The individualism that is inherent in Squad 13 gives them different strengths and weaknesses that can be brought to bear on a situation. To you and me, that may seem like, well, duh, but the actual rulers of the society find it to be a novel idea. This is the reverse of what you usually have in fantasy or sci-fi shows. Usually, something that is unusual or extraordinary to the audience is happening, and the characters involved regard it as commonplace. 
which tells the audience that this is the kind of world where these unusual or extraordinary things just happen. This seems to be a case of something rather mundane to the audience is happening, and the characters are the ones acting like it's out of the ordinary, which tells the audience that this is the kind of world where such things don't happen. Now this is about as on the nose with our individual versus society theme and its sister, individuality versus conformity, uh, as we've had so far. One of them even says, the future we at Ape exalt is one of calmness and uniformity. Man, they better never meet Zotome then. Using him in particular as the narrator for the events that play out in this episode was a strong choice. Uh, it seems a lot of our guesswork about the controlling and conformity in the society is not just about the means by which they control it. It actually seems to be the end goal. We'll talk in theme and speculation about these at length, uh, as there are plenty more examples over the course of this episode. The previously referenced Grand Crevasse comes up again, and Ape is preparing to move our Squad 13 towards this goal of theirs. We are told once again that getting Zero Two to this area is a priority for them. There's also this curious statement. We must have them undergo maintenance in the lab at once. Considering the other things we learned this episode, should we conclude that this is simply the way they think towards humans? Or is there something inherent in the parasites that would need maintenance, like keeping one's equipment up to date? We don't find out, because before we walk down this path, one suggests that they reward the 13ers. This one points out that awards have been a way to inspire soldiers through history, and then makes this revealing statement. It may prove more effective with them, as their way of life reflects a bygone era. Well, I feel like a lot of our speculations and guesses about the 13th Squad uh, and their situation start to look pretty solid. There's the lost city at the beach, which we know is from a past that we recognize, and the Parasite's impression is that it might have served as the model for their environment. We know thanks to the 26er squad that our crew here is very different from the other Parasite groups. They use nicknames instead of their code numbers and are allowed to do so. They have individualized Frank's designs, but they are apparently more ignorant of the world than the other Parasite group. They had no idea that individualized Frank's designs were unusual. Uh, they don't know about becoming adults, or not, even though the 26ers know. And they also don't seem to have been given any direction about coordinating tactics or given team-based fighting parameters or anything like that. The 26ers protest about working with Strelizia and are surprised at the idea of a Franks capable of independent action. And that suggests that it is the norm for parasite groups to fight in the coordinated and homogenous style that they employ. Uh, this is pretty well backed up by the Ape Council's comments uh, that we already talked about, being intrigued by the tactics that the 13ers use. The 26er leader also makes a comment during the battle about Ichigo, and openly wonders about having her and Hiro, who are two elite teen numbers, in a makeshift test squad. Then of course, there's the near-simultaneous advent of puberty for our squad, which we are to understand is highly unusual. All this together means that this squad was very different even before Zero Two showed up. They were a test group who were deliberately organized differently than the other Parasite groups. Now we have this comment about their way of life reflecting a bygone era, which brings into question a lot that we might have taken for granted before now. For example, when we see the two parasites kissing, we can see that they both have a glass dome, and so we presume that the other parasite squads also have their own little biodome and boarding house and private environment. Uh, but maybe that is presuming too much. Maybe things like the grounds, the design of the house, the inclusion of the study and all the specimen displays, 
Even the dining rooms, their meals, and bath, maybe all of it is exclusive to our group. That they pulled all these elements from humanity's past and set up our group to think of all these details as normal. Zero Two didn't know several things that our squad takes for granted as well, like getting presents and the biodome and rain, although we don't know if her past qualifies as normal either. Uh, but it does suggest that it may be different from other plantations, uh, maybe all other plantations. Now we know that there was a squad there before them using similar type rooms, so maybe multiple attempts have been made to raise a group of parasites while mimicking a bygone era. We know that Dr. Franks is trying to keep some of the goings-on with Squad 13 a secret from Ape, but they are in the know about the bygone era style of their living arrangements. This raises a question. What is it about the environment of the parasites in general, and maybe only Squad 13 in particular, that necessitates trying something like this? What is accomplished, or what do they hope to accomplish, by mimicking the past? Because that also seems to be what's going on with this award ceremony that they propose. Now we'll return to other ways our squad differs from the society it serves, as that is a lot of what is revealed in this episode, and this notion of rewarding them is what kicks everything off. Before we leave this part, I just want to note that the ape council members are rendered in way, way greater detail than they have been before now. Uh, their masks seem to be segmented as though made of plates or solid material, and their eyes seem more like lens elements, like either some replacement or enhancement to their normal eyesight. I do think it's interesting to have them more detailed, uh, the same point that they now might start affecting the story more directly. Now, as our parasites return from their latest declaxing, Miku and Zorame get into a row over his actions, getting Miku a face full of blue blood. This is really just a reminder of how quickly they escalate to shouting with one another, to be referenced again later on. Zero Two alone among the parasites does not emerge immediately, but is sitting in Strelesia contemplating something. She is vague with Hero when he asks after her, and this will be one among many moments of her disconnect during this episode a mystery without a good clue until the very end. We'll just note it as we go along, and we'll discuss it then. Now, the shouting match is interrupted by Nana, as many escalations are. She tells the squad that they are to receive medals for their achievements in battle, and gives the details. She points out that there's very little precedent, which might as well be Squad 13's motto at this point, and the squad reacts with... confusion. I'll talk more about this in a bit, but it seems the idea of metals is some abstraction to our parasites that they don't have any context for. They do, however, understand the implication of getting to go inside the city, and it's clearly a very big deal to them, once all of them understand what's happening, that is. Zero Two seems even more disinterested than usual, as she and Hero stand outside the wider circle of their squad, and her reaction to the trip to the city is to excuse herself from the briefing. Nana suggests to her that they might as well take advantage of this trip to have her tested, but Zero Two blows them off, giving a cheery but probably not very genuine reply that she is in great shape right now, so we'll pass on the test for a while. Again, we'll come back to this. Skipping to the next morning, Zorome is unsurprisingly the most excited about donning their formal attire once more. There's a little banter here with Fatoshi outing Zorome for a little narcissism, Miku throwing shade at the guys, and so on, uh, but apart from the others, once again, is Zero Two, who is still in different civilian dress than the other parasites, something we've pointed out before. Nana and Hachi collect them, and we soon have a return of our little access barrier and its symbolism. Nana and Hachi cross without a thought, but the parasites all halt at what they know is the edge of their freedom and experience. Zorome's enthusiasm, again, gets to be played for laughs, 
But like before, the symbolism of crossing from their restricted and perfectly controlled life into one full of new things is on point. Last time, this was Zero Two ushering Hero through the barrier, partially as part of her own innate anarchy, and partially as a testament to their partnership. This time, the parasites are given access to the wider world by official sanction. It's just another in a long list of ways this group is evolving, and the symbol used to represent these changes evolving as well. They ride to the parliamentary building, taking in the city as they go. We get a lot more repetition of the golden hexagon pattern that shows up throughout this environment, which, if you recall, was one of the things that suggested the beehive, you social colony symbols that we talked about back in episode 5. Once in the parliamentary building, we are treated to a speech by the guy with the one wide and three short stripes that we saw during the kissing ceremony. A leader of this plantation of some sort is, I think, what we've inferred. He's given no name or even a face, which seems consistent with the society, but also tells us as the audience that he's not going to be a character in any real sense. Uh, he's more like an animated representation of plantation authority. He moves down the line, saying appropriate things to a few members. He casually refers to Zero Two as a former Nine, so it looks like we'll be taking another speculation off the board at the end of the video. She, though, is still unmoved. Lastly, he comes to our excitable Zotome, positively bursting with nerves. Upon being thanked, he tries his best to play it cool. Yeah, man, you're welcome. High five. While this bit seems like another chance to use Zotome's enthusiasm for comedy, the idea that Zotome thinks of a handshake as a normal thing, while the leader was unprepared for it, suggests once again that the lives of the parasites are fundamentally different from the rest of society, even in the customs that they are familiar with. We will later learn that there is a secondary and more ominous reason for his reaction. Now this wraps up the ceremony, and the children are left wondering, was that it? And I kind of agree. It seems that the parasites have been raised in a manner that makes their experiences and expectations more similar to the audience than the adult world is to the audience or to the parasites themselves. The entire 13th squad is playing a little bit of the audience surrogate in the show. As such, the presentation of the award medals is underwhelming because it seems both we and the parasites expected something a bit more involved. I mean, this is pretty low-key compared to the ceremonies we've already seen, right? Now, why am I even harping on this? Because we already saw that the awarding of medals was an afterthought by Ape. In fact, it came from one member in particular, and was clearly outside of standard operating procedure. The logic seems to be that this was something they did in the past, the parasites have been raised in part as though they are from the past, ergo, they will be inspired by medals. Like, the whole thing undermines our impression of the Ape Council as knowing what they're doing. It makes me think of someone finding a cat and giving it a bowl of milk because that's what they've seen in movies or cartoons, not actually realizing that cats are lactose intolerant. It demonstrates a lack of real knowledge on the subject. And so my takeaway from this is that the Ape Council doesn't truly understand what is going on with their parasites, or at least this squad in particular. This just further reinforces that Dr. Franks is the most likely driving force behind the decisions that are made about Squad 13. Now, the little bit of characterization we've gotten for Nana has her pegged as a bit of a softy, and she's a little empathetic with her wards. This results in her being unable to resist the parasite's pleas to walk back to Mistletine, and Hachi had departed moments before and cannot be the bad cop for the situation. 
Now the parasites are awed at the experience, and they get to talking about living here in the city. Zotome is still assuming they will become adults and live like them, but the others express doubts, saying that they can't imagine it, and that there's no proof that this is their fate anyway. The idea of living here seems to remind Hero of Zero Two's previous statement about the lifelessness of the city, and he brings it up, prompting her to expand on this idea. She declines, and he notes her odd behavior recently. She plays it off by saying that she couldn't care less about this place, uh, which is probably true, even if it's not necessarily the reason she's being so sedate. I am glad that he is at least trying to get her to open up, uh, and that he's separating himself from the group so that she's not walking alone. The sightseeing continues, and they look at a power plant releasing water vapor from a structure that is shaped like the cooling towers around nuclear power plants. This might be the first time in history that two teenage girls have gushed over the aesthetics of such a thing. Goto begins to talk to Ichigo about the plant, but she looks away in self-conscious fashion, reminding us of the confession he made at the end of last episode. It looks like we will have a bit of awkwardness for a bit, which is realistic. Goto doubts the wisdom of his decision, and tells her it ultimately was selfish on his part, so she shouldn't let it bother her. Of course, she herself tried to confess her own feelings not long before, even if they didn't quite get to Hiro, and so I wonder how she internalizes Goto's statements here. She's in the unique position of being both confessor and confessee. The awkwardness between them and the things he says might influence her, either to try again with Hiro to make sure she's heard, or maybe to think better of it. It'll be interesting to see how these mirrored actions play out. It's time to go back, but Zorome hasn't had enough of the city, or a good enough look at the power plant. He manages to get himself stranded, and like any good teenage boy, he's run his smartphone down to no battery and can't call for help. This leaves him to wander around and try to solve the situation himself. He is still high up and wanders to what appears to be a hallway full of entrances. This makes me think of the breezeway in an apartment complex with the door's individual residences. The design of this area is exaggeratedly sterile and unadorned. If these are living quarters, the contrast between their design and what we think of as vibrant vitality is almost certainly intentional. This is the lifeless city that Zero Two refers to. Sotome himself is perplexed by the lack of people around, and in his naivete, first wonders if they might all just be asleep. He finally spots someone and hails them, only to have them scamper away after they take note of him. This pausing and then retreating is a mirror to the leader leaving him hanging earlier, and is another indication to us that something is rotten in the state of Denmark. He tries to take matters into his own hands, which goes as well as we might expect. It actually pays off, as he incapacitates himself, which is probably the only reason the woman he falls in front of doesn't run off in the same way the first guy did. Now waking up in a new location leaves Zorome a little bit alarmed, followed by curiosity. He recovers enough to be thankful for his treatment, but his inspection of his surroundings means that he isn't paying attention to what his rescuer is saying to him. But we can certainly pay attention, and what she says is full of implications. At first she says that he didn't wake up even after she treated him, and it seems we're supposed to glean that the yellow sticker on his wrist is somehow related to that treatment. Okay, it's the future. A high-tech nicotine patch as a treatment for falling on one's head might be within the realm of normal. And then, it gets a little weird. She says, you know how your body and other things are a little different from ours? Well, no, we don't know that actually. We the audience suspected at this point, but this is pretty damning evidence that the parasites are different than the others on some essential genetic level. I don't know what the and other things in her statement implies, but hey, what would be the fun of spilling all the beans right now? She goes on to explain to him that, owing to this difference, 
the medical checker wouldn't work on him, but she played around with it using pet mode settings and it worked out. So parasites are more biologically similar to pets than to other adults? or maybe are varied in the same way that pets are, but that humans maybe no longer are? We'll talk more in speculation. I think it's interesting all by itself that people still have pets in this world, uh, considering what else we learn. Now we time skip slightly over what must have been Zotome complaining about being left behind, and our unnamed host lady prepares to call for him to be picked up, but he stops her. This is his chance to find out about the adults that he has always looked up to, and he wants to chat, to which she assents. It's then that she removes her headpiece, and considering we're 10 episodes into the series, there is some real anticipation as to what might be hiding underneath. And it's an old lady. Now, if you've been following my show from the beginning, you probably guessed correctly that this was a pretty exciting revelation to me. You see, way back in episode two, I proposed this grand infertility barrenness theory about this world, and one of the things I guessed was that the reason the adults might be covered up was because of their age. Uh, specifically, I said, they're ancient and withered and aging because of whatever sort of fallout came from the disaster. Or they're simply aging because they have the technology to keep people alive, but not actually to produce new fertile young. We wondered then why there seemed to be so many adults relative to children. And as far as we know still, there are no children in this world outside of the parasites and potential parasites. Why that may be is something we'll address again in speculation, but you can probably start to guess what I'm going to have to say about it. Now back in the scene, she begins their chat by walking around the house disinfecting. Sotome doesn't think much of it, but the audience certainly knows that this either means she's some kind of germaphobe, or there is some heightened risk of disease spread, uh, such as public places during flu season, a common example of this type of preventative disinfecting. After this, she sits and offers him some refreshment, and we can see what she looks like without the cape thing the adults are usually wearing. Their attire in general is minimalistic and sparse in an exaggerated way, uh, just like the line of doorways we saw before, and even the interior of this building as well. Her outfit has just one odd detail, standing out especially against the otherwise unadorned suit, a little orange pouch or bulb that appears to be connected to tubes that continue under her clothing. The pouch has highlights drawn on it to indicate, I think, that it is a liquid or a plasma of some kind, and the tubes imply that it is connected to her body, like an IV or an insulin pump. Against the background of this detail, we have Zotome reacting to the deliciousness of what she's prepared, but her own refusal of it, explaining that she used to enjoy the sense of taste, but she doesn't care now. In case the medical checker bit wasn't enough, these two details together suggest again that there is something very different about adults in this world. In fact, taken along with the decor and general sterility of the environment, one might even say that they seem inhuman. This gets taken one step further in our next bit, when Zotome's questions about the house lead to an introduction to our host's partner. Before that, though, we have another curious exchange when Zotome latches onto that word, partner. He realizes she doesn't mean it the same way that he does, as she obviously doesn't pilot the Franks. She explains that they're following an old custom, and then that apparently pairs of men and women used to form special relationships in the past to make things easier for themselves and to procreate. Okay, that's, that's a lot. Not only do the people of this world not get married and have kids in the normal way, something we had already suspected, they also only seem to understand it as a social custom, some leftover practice from before whatever happened. 
While this information has been withheld from the parasites, as nearly as we can tell, uh, and he doesn't seem very curious about that procreate word she used, it seems now that it could be as much oversight as anything else. The wider world of adults might have no sense of romance or sexuality either. Since we can guess that there is some monkey business going on with their biology, this absence of love and sex begins to sound really disturbing. Now, she sells this as a good thing, saying that it must have been uncomfortable to rely on others for every little thing. Taking this along with her living situation suggests that there is a prizing of self-sufficiency in this culture. Maybe she finds the past alternative to be annoying, uh, but I can't help but feel that her situation, and presumably most adults' situation, is extremely isolated. This gets reinforced rather firmly in the next bit, where we meet her partner. Now the partner, who is unnamed, just like her, is encased in an apparatus that recalls a cryogenic sleeping pod, or an iron lung, or some other medical preservative device. The number of pipes and wires coming off his head, as well as the visor over his vision, suggests some kind of augmented or virtual reality experience, or else some kind of direct maintenance and manipulation of his brain. This is further suggested by her explanation of his big smile, that he is activating his brain's reward system to gain a sense of pleasure. Then she adds that it is a truly, truly wonderful thing. Now the kind of direct manipulation of your brain chemistry for pleasure that we're seeing here is direct out of the playbook of a cyberpunk or biopunk dystopia. It makes me think of the Soma from Brave New World, uh, though it may not actually be a drug of some kind. Uh, maybe more like the titular film from Infinite Jest, uh, though less destructive. Either way, drugs and other artificial inducements of pleasure in dystopian stories are often encouraged upon the population as a means of control. Being able to flip a switch or pop a pill to get the pleasure you normally get from constructive activities keeps the citizenry from engaging in behaviors they would engage in if left to their own devices, as well as blunt any feelings of unrest or distaste at the control that is exerted over their life. You see, the brain is dumb in a way. The reward system she refers to is a part of the brain that rewards certain activities or desires with pleasure, uh, most often with dopamine release. A lot of the things necessary for continuation of one's self and one's species are rewarded this way. You crave and enjoy food, sex, water, and caring after young because all of these are necessary to keep the old human ball rolling. Now some of that seems to be hardwired into the brain, but the brain is malleable and all kinds of learned behaviors and external stimuli can cause the same release. Now, I am oversimplifying, but this is part of what is going on with addictive behavior. Some substance or activity, like, say, gambling, creates both the pleasure administered by the reward center and the expectation or desire for more of the same pleasurable experience. Stories abound of people whose addictions begin to overtake the things they normally did for pleasure. They lose track of hobbies and friends, and may even begin to neglect family, or a job, or their own health. This, of course, disrupts the entire point of having that reward system in the first place. But, like I said, the brain is dumb. It doesn't know that these things are destructive rather than constructive. Now, being able to adapt one's brain to one's situation is a huge advantage, but it comes with a risk. The wrong stimuli can hijack and supplant the normal pleasure-reward system and it ends up causing you to prefer something besides the normal constructive activities and relationships that humans will otherwise form. And that seems to be what's going on here. What's more, upon hearing this explanation about the reward system from her and seeing the nearly maniacal smile that her partner breaks into, Zorome states that he'd rather gain that pleasure from eating those snacks from earlier. 
We'll talk about this more in theme, but that is such a blatant rejection of this artificial reward system and an inherent understanding of the more natural one that he enjoys. It's a huge reinforcement of our nature versus artifice theme, so we'll talk about it later. Our last part begins as the lady collapses and they return to the living room. She tries to explain that it's been a long time since I've talked with anyone so much and credits her sudden predicament to this change. I'm sure Zorome especially can't conceive of talking so little and assumes that surely she talks to her partner. Instead, she says she doesn't even remember what his voice sounds like. It seems it has indeed been a long time since she's talked to anyone so much. Zorome is incredulous at this, echoing the audience's sentiment, I'm sure. She explains that there's no need to. Now Zorome still doesn't understand and thinks maybe that they're on bad terms, but that's not it at all. Rather, it's that they don't meddle in each other's affairs and each has the freedom to live their lives as they please. It seems that just as her pleasure from the taste of delicious things has faded over time, the pleasure she takes in socialization has faded as well. And this is implied to be normal by the matter-of-fact way that she explains the situation. Now, the idea of not having to hear his own partner's voice intrigues Zorome for a moment. He details his woes of having the loudest and naggiest girl on the squad, and how easily she gets hysterical means that they're always arguing. He should probably look in the mirror sometime. From this, though, his host concludes that he must be matched with the wrong partner. Actually, the way she says that makes me wonder if she wasn't matched with her partner. Now, she asks if their conflicting ways don't interfere with their missions. Kind of makes sense. Uh, but this actually sends Zorme into some self-reflection. He admits that her tendencies don't really bother him much when they're fighting, and that he's probably the only one of the guys that could deal with her. She infers then that there isn't a problem, and he agrees and starts to explain. In doing so, he names Miku, but then realizes that he has to stop to explain that he means his partner. Now this launches a small exchange about names. It seems that just like the 26er squad and Zero Two, the adults in this world also don't have names, or maybe even a real concept of names. Now Zorome seems to know at least that much, explaining that their squad has these nicknames for each other. He is Zorome, but his actual code is... He thinks, that's funny, I don't remember mentioning that. But her knowing look means that she knew this already. She may have known it before they met today, uh, but we'll come back to that as well. Zorome attempts to continue his point, explaining that Miku is actually pretty cute when she keeps her mouth shut, and that sometimes when they're fighting, he feels this urge to protect her. This is actually something he's mentioned before during the boys versus girls fight, and something I remarked at the time as being a pretty standard example of the male protective instinct. What's more, even without knowing him beforehand, we can tell from these words that he's attracted to Miku, which should heighten that need to protect. He says that he wonders if that feeling is what lets them fight together. He then proposes the first in-universe explanation for the male-female pairs, inferring that perhaps that protective instinct he feels toward Miku is an intentional part of the system's design. We get no more from this line of reasoning, though, as his host's ill feeling has progressed, and she says she'll go ahead and call someone to pick him up. Now, during her conversation with whoever, we can see his personnel file just like we could see heroes before. It's pretty similar, and he also has that FP40 prefix to his code, along with coming from the third nursery lab like Hero. The only thing new is that his medical history is on one side, but is censored out with a non-disclosure text over it. This isn't really that surprising and doesn't really tell us anything new. Nazorame is gazing out the window at the city during this phone call. 
When our host lady returns to him, she discovers that he is crying, and he's surprised to learn this himself. She infers that he may be hurt, but that's not it. He tries to explain that even though this is the first time he's met her, she felt really familiar to him. He says, and then, and trails off, which I feel implies that he's crying because he is processing his imminent departure from the apartment and whatever feelings are welling up in him toward this person. Now, she says, I believe this is the first time I've really met you. He accepts this, but he doesn't seem to notice the difference in her phrasing. As he tries to further explain, we get flashes to his childhood, an empty chair, and then him seated in a similar chair, as well as she herself looking down, troubled or sad. He says he feels like someone's always been watching over me. Now she has turned to him at this point, and she starts to extend her hand, but as he continues to say that this someone is gentle and kind, like they're always there to protect me, she stops short. She even gasps a little bit. Then she lowers her hand and says that he really is mistaken. She can't protect him. The light piano music that was playing over his words stops short when she does this as well, reinforcing the disruption of the moment. Now she turns this moment around to say that he's the one protecting them after all, but let's just go ahead and interpret this whole exchange before we move on. Now, maybe this more rightfully belongs in speculation, but the way this episode ends implies to me that we may never see this host lady again, so we'll go ahead and talk about this now. If we take all of these elements, the opening part of this episode and the way it recalled birth, uh, the fact that she already knew his code number, the fact that she took him in at all despite what turned out to be a risk to herself, the way she reacts to this moment of familiarity, her phrasing of first time to really meet him, and then the fact that they both have violet eyes, something I can't remember any other character having, take all that together and I feel it's strongly implied that this is his mother. Whether that means she birthed him in the normal way, or if she was the chosen donor for some artificial means, I don't know. But in some way or another, she is implied to be the closest thing to a mother he has. We don't yet know the exact situation with their kids and their birth and their early years. Uh, we know from Hero that they at least have a concept of parents and that they know they came from an orphanage. The images here of Zotome sitting in a chair and then an empty chair that is different. You can see that it sits on the tiles differently implies a visitation that didn't happen, a child sitting opposite a chair that remains unoccupied. Her statements about following the old custom in having a partner certainly implies that it's not a normal mother-child situation, with the child being given up to the state. Uh, but all these details aren't the real thrust of the scene. I think instead that this belongs as part of our nature versus artifice theme. The pleasure center activation that we mentioned already can take the place of normal things humans do for fulfillment. This could very well extend to parenthood, to maternal instinct. And it seems for a moment that Zotome's emotional upwelling may penetrate this, may stoke some of whatever feelings she might have. The way she says that it's the first time really meeting him implies that they have met before, but that this time he's really who he is. He's fully formed as a person, and so was essentially a stranger. So maybe she has known of him, or even seen him when he was much younger, uh, beyond the scope of his own memory, but the circumstances to see him, or even the desire to, have faded over time. In this moment of really meeting him though, and his emotional reaction to it, those maternal impulses start to well up in her as well. But then something about that word, protect, snaps her out of it. She rejects the natural impulse and retreats, 
What is it about that word that would do so? To guess, let's go on to the next part of the scene. So since Zorme has felt this connection to her, he lays out a type of plan to help him cope with their approaching separation. He proposes that he'll continue fighting and killing Klaxosaurs, and then one day he'll get to be an adult and live in the city. He starts to ask if she'll be his family when this happens, but thinks better of it and asks if she'll be his friend instead. She says that's obviously out of the question. And when he doesn't understand, she starts to explain that he is... something. We don't know because the scene blanks. We don't even know if she continued her sentence or not. But considering how often we have actual interruptions stop characters from continuing their line of thought, I feel like we would have heard the guys who show up in a moment either knock or ring on the doorbell or something else to stop her from saying more. Since we just time skip instead, it suggests that Zotome got to hear the reason that them being friends in the future was obviously out of the question. But we don't know either way. However, I think we can gather that there is something that will prevent the parasites from becoming adults. Now, is this a fundamental difference that keeps them from aging that far? Some aspect of their nature that causes them to expire before adulthood? Some directive in the society that kills them off before then? Or something else? It doesn't matter. The point is, I am guessing the reason that the notion of protecting him stopped our host lady from continuing is that she knows there is no protecting him. Whatever happens to parasites is treated as an absolute. Something gives them a shelf life, a known shelf life it seems, and it happens before they become adults in truth. If this really is his mother in some respect, then she has been absent from most of his life already, and her way of life seems to be very isolating as it is. Leaving pleasure-inducing machines out of it, one could see how this disengagement from your own child could be easier if you are already sure he won't make it out of childhood. He's doomed already. Spare yourself the pain of loss by never getting attached, because ultimately, you can't protect him. Now we get a suggestion of what it is that he can't be protected from after the little time skip, where what are apparently medical handlers of some variety are in our host's home. Two of them are scanning him with handheld units that seem to act and sound like Geiger counters for detecting radiation. However, if we flip the image around where you can read it, we can see that what they are measuring is something called CFU. A quick trip to Wikipedia suggests that this means colony-forming units, which is an estimate of the number of viable bacteria or fungal cells in a given sample. This figure is a kind of measure of concentration of these cells, and therefore gives an indication of how many are present and how likely they are to give rise to a colony. Considering the comments from our medical team here, this seems like the most likely meaning of that CFU uh, initialization. Now, as the host lady explains her care of Zotome to one of the officials, we see him hand her another one of the little orange pouches that she wears. Now, we can't tell whether this is a refill or something more specific to help her with whatever it is that's currently ailing her, but it does at least suggest that this pouch is medical in nature. Now, the two examining Zotome have a dialogue of their own. One is annoyed at being called out here and tells Zotome that this isn't a place infected children like you should enter. Okay, infected? With what? This is the first time we've heard of this. And the other one though rebukes him for this, saying that they're basically victims in all this too, the poor pitiful things. Well, this will certainly fuel some speculation, so we'll return to it then. We cut back to the boarding house, where they learn that Zotome has been found. Despite herself, Miku gives a huge sigh of relief, which immediately turns into irritation at being made to worry, and she declares a suitable punishment for him. 
The end episode narration begins after this, with Zotome reflecting on the medical examiner's words, and countering that they are not pitiful. He begins to reflect on the host lady, against the background of Miku coming to harass him while he's cleaning out the bath. Does anyone else think that she kinda missed him? Anyway, he's attempting to sort out why she felt familiar. We actually get something different this time from our normal opening and closing narrations. Other than the very first words of the series from Zero Two, all of the other Parasite thoughts have been in the present. They've concerned how they currently feel or think. Zorome's narration, though, indicates that these thoughts are from the future, that he thought about it a bunch of times after that day, and that eventually he stopped and even forgot about her. Furthermore, he says that he stopped having that dream that opened the episode, which definitely is another suggestion that the host lady was his mother in some respect. Now, being able to forget her like this suggests to me that he didn't share this whole experience with the other parasites, as it's exactly the kind of thing that would probably stoke their curiosity. In this way, the choice of Zotome by the writers to be the one put through this experience has very different consequences than if they've chosen someone introspective, like Hiro or Goro. I think Kokoro might even have guessed at the importance if she's read that whole maternity book by now. But Zotome isn't this way. And so it seems that the information he learned doesn't get brought back to the parasites as a whole. That really means that this episode was not about affecting the course of the story, but was purely for informing the audience, giving us a peek behind the curtain of this world. We have a last brief scene. Hiro glances up at Zero Two's window, no doubt still dwelling on her subdued nature of late. Inside, we get a hint at what it might be about. Looking at herself in the gifted mirror, she pushes her lips out of the way to reveal a set of sharpened teeth that have either grown or replaced her own. These aren't vampire fangs, but the elongated canines common in predatory mammals. We have seen her this way before, actually, during the fight with Target Beta where Hero appeared to have died and she fought on alone, red-eyed, bestial, barely in control. Now it seems that they are returning not out of some momentary descent into that side of her, but as a background increase that has been going on for at least a day or two. This is probably not only why she was acting subdued, but why she refused the tests early on in this episode as well. Suddenly that shattered mirror from the opening takes on some new implications. Uh, we'll speculate about what that means when we get there, so let's go ahead and move on to goals and conflicts. So we do actually have some goal and conflict movement this time. The first goal concerns Zero Two's unknown goal, but this is not progress on this goal, but perhaps a step backward. You see, we thought before that it might be related to her becoming less of a monster, and that this itself might also be related to killing more and more Klaxosaurs. If becoming less monstrous and or more human is a goal of hers, which we're guessing it is, then the return of these canines when she is in her normal state does not bode well. This goal is still unknown, and so we don't know the parameters of it, but we can guess from her temperament to this episode that she is not enthusiastic about this state of affairs. At the very least, this doesn't seem like it gets her closer to being more human or less monstrous. Our other goal movement this time is on Ape's unknown goal. We have so many unknown goals in this series. We know from the last time we talked about it that getting Zero Two to the Grand Crevasse was part of their overall plan. This time, there is talk of Klaxosaur activity in that area, and the statement that it is Squad 13's duty to bring Code 002 there safe and sound. Thus, we can assume that shortly our 13ers will be hitched to this goal as well, and it will guide their side of the story. 
Still absolutely no idea what the big crack is, uh, what they need 024, or even if this is merely a sub-goal of something larger. But at least we know they're going to keep teasing it out to us, even if the parasites aren't privy to the info. We additionally have a new goal, maybe. We don't know if Ape's desire to get 02 to the Grand Crevasse is related to this or not, but we have a moment where one of our council members states that the future we at Ape exalt is one of calmness and uniformity. This seems to be what they want as guiding principles for the society that they are building. And we can surmise that a lot of the differences between this world and the one we know has come about as a result of this goal. So we'll add it, and we'll start to evaluate our council's decisions against this desire. This may end up being the unknown goal, but until we know how Zero Two links to it, uh, I'll keep them separate. In conflicts this time, we have just the one thing to add, and that is Zero Two changing. It's a physical change that we can see, but we don't really know the scope of it. She's aware of it, aware it has some implications, and she wants to avoid its discovery. How this may affect things is hard to guess without more information, but combining her mood with the reveal of her teeth at the very end of the episode suggests pretty strongly that it will change things in a negative way. This might end up being linked to the shattered mirror in the opening that we coincidentally talked about for another reason, and I'll elaborate on that in speculation. In theme today, we'll start with nature versus artifice. Uh, this is definitely the big one this time around. I referenced it already when we talked about the implied motherhood and ultimately the rejection thereof. I also referenced it during the bits with the partner and likening the artificial stimulation of the brain's reward center to the type of pacifying actions taken by those in power in some dystopian stories. Truthfully, there are a lot of elements in this episode that demonstrate how unnatural and artificial the lives of the adults seem to be. The outside of the buildings are featureless and uniform, the rooms we see inside are completely without decor or personalization, and this bleakness and sterility in their living quarters and their clothing reflect the lack of warmth we see in their social lives, or their lack of social lives, as it seems to be. I mean, never mind the completely bizarre situation with her partner, the host lady's statement that she hasn't spoken to anyone so much in a long time tells us that she has practically no socialization in her day-to-day -day existence. I think they are presenting her to us as representative, uh, that this is the way most or all of the other adults live. They are isolated, but they think of it as freedom, of not needing to rely on others. There's also the hint that something biologically is different about them compared to the parasites, though which is closer to a normal human is something we still don't know. Whether due to that or the conditioning of their lifestyle, the adults have a host of things that we would consider inhuman. Romance appears non-existent, and perhaps normal reproduction is non-existent as well, and they survive only as a type of social custom with no meaning. Socialization of other forms has withered as well, if she never talks to anyone. And even something as basic as her sense of taste has slowly lost all its potency, until she doesn't even gain pleasure from it anymore. Now, that is all pretty well on the side of artifice. As we've said before, our parasites seem to be more on the side of nature in this debate, and Zotome embodies this idea perfectly in his comment about the artificial stimulation of the reward center. He says that he'd rather get that pleasure from the eating of the snacks, which, as I've said, is a natural, likely innate way that the body rewards us with dopamine and pleasure feedback. What's more, he outright states a preference for it, elevating it over the unnatural display that he's witnessing. Zotome's frankness in illustrating this contrast makes him a good choice this time, uh, as I've mentioned. 
There's another way in which he is perfect for this choice as well, which fits our theme nicely. See, the Ape Council tipped their hand a little more this time, saying that the future they are working toward is one of calmness and uniformity. That is a goal at total odds with the chaos of the natural world. Who better to embody this opposing force than Zotome, who can hardly go a minute without some exaggerated reaction, whose constant impulsive behavior frustrates those around him, and even his equally impulsive partner? Can you imagine him fitting into a world whose guiding principle was calmness and uniformity? Of course, the way we see these adults living fits Ape's desires pretty well. They are uniform to a depressing degree. They have little to no variance or personalization of their environs or dress. They are calm as though they've had all the natural impulses and desires blunted and drained out of them. I suspect they are infinitely predictable as well. Just the thing for a population you hope to control. But for some reason in the story, they need to reach back to their more natural state. And there's still a lot we don't quite know, but there has obviously been an effort to immerse the parasites into a more natural setting than the rest of society. To do so, they have to reach back to a bygone era. And the implication here is that such a natural state doesn't exist otherwise in the world. The past is their only example. As such, they live among plants and ponds and rainstorms. They live in lush dorms with stimulating decor and foodstuffs. They have a bath and a study and can pursue activities like sports or reading or fishing. And they constantly socialize. They're constantly eating and bathing and talking together. And of course, they feel desire and attraction toward each other. Their relationships are allowed to progress in the natural way. You know, the knowledge that parasites going through puberty usually have some kind of intervention becomes especially disturbing now that we've had this peek at the adult world. Like, what are they doing to these parasites? This theme implies that this intervention would probably involve some kind of upsetting of their natural state. So, castration? Hormone suppression? Something done directly to their brains? I can't really guess, and it might be something as mild as segregation and counseling, but this episode does seem to suggest that something more invasive would be on the table. Now, the parasites compared to the adults already seems like an encapsulation of this nature versus artifice debate. This time, their actual day-to-day -day lives are shown to reflect this juxtaposition as well, and the difference is even more stark than we'd suspected. There is, additionally, an embodiment of this contest in the person of Zero Two, and her situation at the end of this episode suggests that it may return to the forefront. I said in episode 5 that she asked Ichigo something that might turn out to be the central question of the series. What is human to you people? I said that this seemed like a simple question about Zero Two's situation, but that it might have a much wider implication. In fact, let me just play it all again. We know that Zero Two is, in some part, different from the parasites, that she's a different kind of thing. But who is to say that Zero Two is the lone anomaly in the sea of humanity? Who is to say that the parasites themselves are not vastly different than the rest of humanity, or at least different than the adults, who they are assuming are aged up versions of themselves, but they actually might be way off? What if the Ape Council is a different kind of thing as well? In a world where we can't assume any of these things is the same, what becomes the commonality that makes anyone human, or, or not human? Either way, there is potential here for the series to explore what aspects of a person or a society make it human or inhuman. Well, we certainly got a little bit of play with these concepts this time. And I should point out that humanity itself occupies a weird place in the nature versus artifice conflict. Everything that we consider artifice or artificial comes from humans. We make them. 
Whether we're speaking of devices or social constructs, artifice means things we create that wouldn't be in the world otherwise. And yet, humanity itself is part of the natural world. We're animals, mammals. We grow and change and die. We have instincts and are largely subject to the whims of our body's functions. You should understand, too, that artifice is not some negative thing compared to the positive of the natural world. After all, ethics and art and the rule of law are all artifice. Civilization exists after the idea of social order, but nature is comparably uncaring about the fate of any specific being. It's not good versus bad, it's order versus chaos. In this tension, humans occupy a kind of middle space, which makes sense, of course. There wouldn't be any need to have a theme if humanity existed wholly on one side or the other. Zero Two, though, further encapsulates this. She is not quite human, but knows it and actively attempts to become more so. The parasites are a product of their more natural upbringing, but Zero Two is purposely moving herself more toward humanity. And her comments on the lifeless nature of the city suggest that to her, more human means less like these guys. Ironically, she herself may be a product of artifice, some laboratory-induced crossing between her and Klaxosaurs. Regardless of how, she is part Klaxosaur. I've said before that Klaxosaurs could very well be an example of Gaia's revenge, nature pushing back against man for his repeated transgressions. In this way, they are a much more literal version of nature versus artifice in their attacks on plantations and the magma mining operations. And Zero Two has some of their blood in her, and is the only person in the series who seems openly hostile to the plantation society. It's sort of like this. If pure artifice is over here, and pure nature is over here, then you can perhaps imagine that normal humans might exist somewhere here in the middle. The plantation is over here on the side tilted toward artifice, and the ape council seems to be pushing them further towards pure artifice. We'll say that the parasites occupy this middle space, or somewhere thereabouts. Claxosaurs might turn out to be artificial, but in their behavior, they are way over here opposite plantation society. Zero Two, then, would be somewhere over on this side, but she's striving to be more toward the middle, more like whatever she considers human. The Klaxosaur in her was going to pull her more this way, towards nature and chaos, and this seems to be the case when she loses control in Episode 6. Now that her canines are elongated, despite being in control, it may be that whether she wants it or not, she's moving this way instead. So then, her question, what is human to you people? Where along this line does humanity stop and start, and is everything on either side of this inhuman? Controlled and sterile like the adults over here? Bestial and wild like Zero Two over here? If Zero Two is pulled this way, how does that affect the parasite's relationship to her? How about Hero's relationship? Which way are the parasites themselves being pulled? Zero Two's own internal war appears to mirror the larger debate about a society that appears under the thumb of those who would make it less and less natural all the while. So who will win? Where does being humans stop and start? More and more, this seems like the central theme of the series, the one that unites most of the others in the main debate or tension. In fact, the other two thematic elements I want to talk about can easily be linked to this one. The first of those themes, the Beehive You Social Society, uh, this episode furthers the Beehive You Social Colony metaphor for the Parasite Society. 
Um, I noted already the golden hexagons that show up even more in this tour of the city. And I said back in episode five that these recalled the honeycomb of a beehive. That visual symbolism gets more examples, basically. Uh, another way is in the Ape Council's voiced goals. One of their exalted ideas is that of uniformity, which is exactly what is required for certain colony species to function. Although humans can normally be said to be social colony creatures, the degree and specialization and division of labor in the society seems to share much more in common with the colonies of bees and ants and termites. In those societies, individuals develop or are developed differently depending on their function in society, and all the members of a certain caste are basically interchangeable with one another. This type of dehumanizing of individuals in a society into more machine-like, modular state is usually the goal of the powers that may be in many other dystopian stories, and the parallel to insect societies continues to be a good parallel. I know that contriving to make humans more like bees seems like moving them over towards something that is natural on our nature versus artifice scale, but it's actually the opposite precisely because it is contrived. Humans aren't this way normally. They have to be induced to be so artificially, intentionally. Even if it resembles a naturally occurring thing, that doesn't mean it itself is natural. No matter how real they look, a silk flower has no floral scent. So power of names is next. Um, this was a thematic pattern I mentioned early on, but it hasn't really come up a lot. Uh, we observe the humanizing power of names in the nicknames that Hero dispensed, and this lines up nicely with our idea that the parasites are closer to the middle, the more human part of the nature versus artifice scale. This is where my idea that he would eventually bestow a name on Zero Two came from. It's still something I think will happen, and is now likely to become part of her quest to become more human. This time, though, we got more information about this thematic idea. For the first time, we get confirmation that someone outside of the parasites may have no names. Like, we've seen everyone refer to parasites by their code numbers, right? But as far as we knew, everyone else had normal names. Hachi, Nana, Dr. Franks, Papa, none of them are specifically code names. Thus, parasites having code numbers as designations seemed like a byproduct of an attitude that they were disposable or experiments or subhuman or something. Well, now that we've had our host lady be bewildered by the idea of a name, we can infer that those with names are actually the exception. The adults themselves might have codes only as well. This makes me think of the novel We, actually, a book written by someone who was living under the early years of Soviet policy. Um, I think it was actually the first work they ever banned, or actually maybe the first novel. Anyway, it's largely seen as the model for a lot of dystopian works to follow, and among the things it features is this supplanting of names with codes like D503 or O90. It also has an extremely obvious nature versus artifice thing going on, uh, but we won't get into that. Anyway, we now know that this dehumanizing stripping of names extends to others in the society as well. What is particularly curious about this, though, is the things that do have names, like the Plantations, Carassus and Chrysanthemum, like the Franks, Strelesia, Genista, Argentia, Chlorophytum, Delphinium. In other words, things, machines, artifice. They are deserving of something like a name, but the individuals in the society are not. Can there be any doubt which side of our spectrum the Ape Council exalts? Can there be any doubt to the importance of Hero's habit of bestowing names? So in What to Watch For, we got some of our original questions about the adults answered or addressed. Yay. 
We had wondered why the parasites were surprised to see so many, and whether they were segregated from each other. It seems they are segregated, and at least some of the reason is related to the parasites being infected children. This further explains why they're surprised to see so many. The number of adults that come into contact with the parasites is probably regulated. And in retrospect, we can see that a lot of these adults that don't interact with them all the time, like the guards, have their face covered and or are wearing respirators. This answers one part of this third question about why so many are covered up. The other half, those who aren't wearing things over their mouth or nose, are presumably covered up because they're old. This might be vanity, it might be conformity, but outside of Nana and Hachi, all the adults either have their mouths covered if they normally interact with the parasites or the outside world, and don't have them covered if they exist exclusively inside the city. Suddenly the invisible caretakers in Mistletine make more sense as well. They really have the parasites under a type of soft quarantine. Let's see. Um, we also confirm that Zero Two is or was one of the Nines, so we'll be taking that off of speculation as well. Uh, it also answers questions we had here, such as where the rest of her unit is, and what Strelizia usually does when she's not chilling at Plantation 13, uh, so we'll take those off as well. We also don't have it answered for sure, but Zotome put forth the first idea about why Franks are piloted by male-female pairs. He doesn't quite understand the instinct he has towards Miku, but guesses that it might be a boon to them when being partners in combat. We won't take this off over this, of course, but we'll take note of it. After all, there might be a combination of reasons rather than a single thing, so we'll note them all as they come up. So now for things to add, I would have added that we watch for the host lady, who might be Zotome's mother, to re-enter the story, but the way his final narrations seem to indicate that he forgets about her for good sometime in the future suggests that we needn't bother. Honestly, I'm not pleased at the change in tense for his thoughts. Every other bit of narration has been in the present, has been a reflection of the speaker's state of mind during the story while it's in motion. The only exception is Zero Two's opening words, as I've noted, uh, but those are phrased in such a way that they could be her speaking from the past, or her speaking from the future, or simply thinking to herself in the present of that opening plane ride. They're accompanied by images that seem to be both from her past and future, or else dreams or ideals, and so they do not indicate any direction to the story. The other narrations do this as well. They don't tip the hand of the storytellers about what's coming. Zotomaze, though, eliminates the question of this mysterious adult who he spent an afternoon with. It reduces the scope of the story in a way that I don't think is necessary, and it sets precedent for the story to do more of this with future narrations. Narration is invasive enough without it hedging in the story, too, you know? Well, rant over. Uh, the thing we will add is, what the heck are the children infected with, and what does it mean? I mean, there's probably like 20 questions that can be bundled with this, like the thing with the medical checker and pet settings, how much of their sequestering is related to this versus their training, how much whatever they're carrying has affected the world, and so on, uh, but we'll keep it all together and just tease it out over time. Now to turn to speculation. Uh, well, as mentioned, Zero Two is or was part of the Nines, so we'll cross that one off. Uh, we figured we could do that at the end of Episode 6, but it's nice to make sure. For things to add, um, so I mentioned my whole debacle with the mirror. Uh, well, I actually have a new speculation about it thanks to this episode, so it was a good time to figure out my mistake. I now speculate that the broken mirror is not representative of someone that will be antagonistic toward her, 
but is representative of her reaction to the ways that she is physically changing. That is to say that the prominent canines are potentially just the beginning of changes in her, and as they represent a move away from humanity, she will come to find her own looks loathsome. The mirror will transform from a treasured gift into a hated object that reflects her terrible situation back to her. She may smash it in truth, or it may simply be a metaphor for the gifts that Hero gives her that are less material, like his love and understanding and support, all the things represented by the idea of him being her wings. Thus, I speculate that she will reject him, or push him back to arm's length like she treats everyone else. She will attempt to destroy some of what they have together. It's also possible that this will be done for them, from outside their control, but hopefully it's her initiative. I doubt Hero will just go along with this either, but we'll see. This is one of those times where I am speculating both what I think will happen and what I hope will happen. See, the characterization of her and Hero that would come out of such a conflict will be really illuminating for us and for them, and we're also likely to uncover a lot more about each of their pasts as they attempt to reconcile. Considering the way we've taken a bit of a break from the two of them lately to let the other parasites have their day in the sun, this would be a heck of a way to make their relationship front and center once again, and it's sure to have a far-reaching story impact as well. It's also perfectly aligned with the themes we already have going on, which is really the main reason that I speculate this in the first place. My second speculation is really more of an updating of an existing speculation. Uh, that is my episode two theory about the world being infertile or barren, and the Franks experiment being related to that. This time we have the first hints of infection or disease being a background threat to the society, and this somehow also relates to the parasite situation. We also get the detail that the parasites are different enough from the adults that the medical checker won't work on them, ostensibly when set to human, but will work when set to pet. We then also see that Zotome is infected, and the host lady's reaction to his presence seems less like being tired from talking and more like a reaction to whatever it is that he might be carrying. Add this to the pouch she has hooked up to herself, and the artificial aspects of her and her partner's life, and the shape of things starts to look like this. There was disease in the world. Maybe more than one, but some kind of pandemic situation was loosed on humankind. Now how this relates to Klaxosaurs, I, I won't guess. Uh, they might be a red herring altogether, the enemy at the gates that unites humanity under authoritarian control. That's, that's distinct from all this. Regardless of why it happened, I speculate that humanity had to do something drastic to stop from being wiped out. The result of this drastic action is their rampant infertility, whatever form it takes. We can guess from the medical checker exchange that adults are genetically dissimilar from parasites. The further detail that a pet setting, not dog or cat or fish, but pet, suggests that this setting is looking for a wide array of biological specimens. Or rather, it suggests the reverse, that the human setting is looking for an extremely narrow set of genetics or biological markers, much more narrow than would exist in other species. So narrow that Zotome exists outside of it, and the lady says herself that their bodies and other things are different. This suggests two possible avenues to me. One is that maybe the mass of humanity has been genetically altered to make them resistant to whatever ravaged them in the past, but it does not protect them from new diseases, other diseases. They're weak and need to live in quarantine. Or possibly not even genetically altered. Maybe only those with a very narrow range of genetics survive at all. 
Either way, something in them results in a genetic makeup different enough from the parasites to confuse their medical devices. Conversely, the other avenue. They don't find a way to alter people to resist the disease, but they do find a way to alter people to extend their lives. Maybe way, way beyond the normal limit. Let's point out that the name of this episode is City of Eternity, which could very well suggest that you have a city full of quasi-immortals. In this case, they aren't altered to be protected from disease, but from old age. To protect them from disease, they live in highly controlled interior environments, sequestered away from anything in the natural world that could infect them, and those who must interact with the outside do so with protective coverings. The parasites are kept separate not only for their own metrics and performance, but as a way to keep their infected selves from bringing down the larger population. This is the real reason our plantation leader leaves Otome hanging, and is the reason the medical examiner is irritated at Zorome for coming into someone's home, but also the reason the other examiner thinks that they are victims themselves. And what is the shape of this victimhood? Well, I guess this is really its own speculation, but I'll mention it here. Regardless of which avenue led to this, is it possible that the disease the parasites are carrying is something that only kills you as you reach adulthood? That the reasons they don't reach adulthood isn't some genetic monkey business or state-sanctioned execution, but some kind of doom they carry with them? And since they are doomed anyway, why not make use of them as the frontline soldiers against the Klaxosaurs? Heck, the parasite designation might not even refer to them, but to whatever it is they carry. So maybe the children are normal, natural, homegrown humans, susceptible to whatever the pandemic is, but not until they reach adulthood. Other humans are no better protected, but are modified to stay alive way past their normal expiration. To keep away the restlessness that would normally accompany long lives, trapped indoors with no real family structure, the adults are encouraged to use artificial means to induce pleasure, to conform and be isolated, and, of course, to be super grateful to the parasites for their continued sacrifice. Now, I don't know if this means there are never any children that get to join society in the normal way, uh, Nana and Hachi are definitely not old, but also definitely adults, and they don't kill over or wear respirators. The medical examiners seem to be younger as well. This is a gap in my speculation for sure. I mean, maybe it's less a matter of infertility and more of an enforced breeding quota or limit. For whatever reason, they decided that they would try to keep everyone alive as long as possible, and rather than expand their population size, they replace their individual numbers only as citizens die off. The adults who are younger were children that didn't become parasites for whatever reason that separates them. The rest of the children? They go through the process to eventually become protectors and soldiers, relieving the adults from risking themselves. They aren't orphans in the normal sense, having families and children has ceased to be a thing, but they are perhaps donated to society by its members. Maybe only very few adults can reproduce, and those children are therefore taken by the state for further study. Trying to be a donor or a surrogate might be one of those things compulsory in the society, in the same way that military service is compulsory in some others. Eventually, they find enough people that can reproduce, even if just once, and these become the disposable defense force for the meantime. Ape, then, may simply be trying to solve the Klaxosaur threat for all time, after which they won't need any new children at all and can simply preside over a society of calm, uniform immortals. Of course, that's their plan. Dr. Franks, on the other hand, is either trying to solve the infertility issue rather than going the immortality route, 
or is trying to find a way for natural humans to live to adulthood and bear viable young of their own. The Franks pairing becomes the perfect cover to pursue this in Defiance of Ape, and thus all the things that are different about the Parasites in general and Squad 13 in particular. I could be way off, of course. The Parasites might be the modified ones, modified to be resistant to the disease, with the side effect of death upon adulthood. This could certainly play with the infertility idea itself, that humans can't bear young normally anymore because of whatever happened and whatever it is that extends their lives. But they can produce these genetically altered parasites who can survive for a time, but never reach adulthood. This leaves Dr. Franks instead trying to find a way to extend their lives or make them capable of reproduction themselves in the normal way. Speaking of Dr. Franks, I had a germ of an idea that I never had enough evidence to put forth, but it seems to have been killed by this episode, so I guess I'll throw it out there. I thought that there was a chance that our parasites were fully artificial, uh, meaning that they might be clones. The code numbers referred to their original source, hence no names, and there are therefore multiple iterations of code 15 and code 16 and so forth, and they keep pairing them up in different ways to try to find the dream team combinations. After they do that, they'll only produce those clones. This was going to be my guess as to what the first part of those code numbers means, that the 40 in FP40 was the generation or batch number for this round of parasites. What prompted this whole line of thought was Dr. Frank's and the beach episode. I remarked then that based on the state of decay of that lost city, it seemed plausible that some older members of society might actually remember the time before the plantations. Since that city was apparently the model for Squad 13's environment, and since Dr. Franks was the one who arranged for them to go there, I was going to guess that he himself might have been a teenager there in that seaside town. Following that idea, our Squad 13 parasites aren't random birth children, but are actually clones of the people that Dr. Franks himself knew in his adolescence. Those end credits we've had? There's three versions so far, and they seem to depict our five girls in a time period that's more like the one we live in now. Well. Rather than that just being a different way to show off their character designs, those are actually Dr. Franks's memories of those five from their younger days. Which is why the first one had the girls all in school uniforms. They were his classmates before the disaster took them. Thus, his efforts are not just about protecting humanity and possibly ending other threats, but are also about restoring his former friends to a world where they don't die out. Now, like I said, this episode sort of killed this idea. We find out that the parasites aren't unique in having numbers instead of names. We also get the heavy implication that the host lady is Zotome's mother in at least some respect. I guess she could just be a surrogate, uh, but they both have violet eyes, so that seems like a stretch. Those two facts together have kind of put this idea on ice. Um, I've been waiting for some more concrete evidence to put it forth, but I got just the opposite this time. So, figured I'd mention it as a potentially cool idea they could have done with the series. Of course, the Zero Two and those after credit images also has horns, so that might have shot the whole thing down from the get-go anyway. Unless the Klaxosaurs came before the disaster, and they'd already started experimenting. Eh, no. That way madness lies. Uh, we'll just stop there, and we'll call the episode over. Next time, I would guess either one more of these side character features, or we'll begin some kind of two-part mid-season climax or showdown. Until then. 
title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle, script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly On Red, and a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.